You're listening to TIP. It's very uncertain times, I would say. And I'll tell you, Robert, the third deal that I acquired, it was an 80-unit apartment, Buckridge at Southport, bought it for $3.35 million. A year and a half, two years later, sold it for $5 million. I have no way, have no clue how that person made that deal work. In this week's episode, I bring back Sterling White to discuss all things multifamily investing. Sterling White is a successful real estate entrepreneur with over 500 multifamily units, the podcast host of the Real Estate Experience podcast, author of From Zero to 400 Units, and a former world record attemptee. Sterling was one of the very first guests to ever join me on this podcast, so it's pretty cool for me to catch up with him again years later both to see his growth, but also to reflect on how much this show has grown and changed since then. Last time he was on the show, many of you longtime listeners loved his energy, so I hope you and all the new listeners hearing Sterling for the first time enjoy it again, too. Now, let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I welcome back a pretty cool guest, Sterling White. Welcome back. Yes, appreciate it. Everyone who's on here, go ahead and strap in your seatbelts. Hopefully that you already have your seatbelts if you are driving. So we're going to take you along for a ride. It's pretty cool to have you back on the show because I like all my repeat guests, but it's really cool for you because you were just the third guest to ever join me on the show when I started hosting a podcast. And and you can go back if anybody's listening, go back to listen to episode number three. I was a horrible host. I didn't know how to talk into a mic. Sterling was great as always. Listen to his stuff. Don't listen to me too much, but it's cool to have you back after over two and a half years. Give us an update. What have you been up to in that time? Man, time has flown from the two and a half years. I mean, just in 2020, that was what, five, six, seven years, uh, it seems like. And some people say post and pre-COVID, sort of like the BC and AD, I think is how you say it. But I would say a lot from a... Uh, what do you call that mindset uh, shift in the the way and how I view the world, but is also I moved from Indianapolis to Houston. That was a significant move that I've made. And I would say love, enjoy uh, being out here. The only thing I would say, Robert, is they say everything's bigger here in Texas, except the toilet that I have. I don't know if I just have a defective toilet because it's the same size as the ones back home. What made you make the move from, from Indy to Houston? I'd say is real estate was a part of that decision. Also, the weather too is during the winter times, it is brutal in the Midwest in Indianapolis. There's that. And then also, I just wanted a change. I was having success in Indianapolis. I started to get a little bit more uh, comfortable and as a way to really uh, just change up the environment, I just ended up moving to, to Houston. And I'll tell you, I was scared, uh, not scared. Yeah, I would use the word scared or just fearful in making that such of a big decision. And as soon as I was thinking about making the, the move is all these different thoughts came in my mind. You've been living here all your life. Your family's here. 
uh, that's the unknown. And when I've had my biggest breakthroughs in life is when I've actually leaned into it. There are a lot of places you could have gone. Why did you choose Houston? Yeah. So I was looking at Tampa and then I was looking at uh, Austin. So one, the cost of living here is uh, good on that side. And then also buying deals as well as you really get the best of both worlds from an appreciation and a cash flow. And it's diverse from the, the people that are here, the, the culture. There were the, just a multitude of things, but more so from a real estate play and then also from a cost of living because I ended up, Tampa was one, and then I ended up narrowing down to Austin and then Houston. And then Austin, the getting cash flow and yields out there a little bit more difficult. And then also the cost of living is higher too. So that's when just Houston made the, the most sense. For those who didn't hear our last episode together, since we've gotten a lot of new listeners since then, tell us a bit about your background and your upbringing through Section 8 housing and how that's led to where you are today. Humble beginnings for myself is that I grew up in the not so good parts of the city of Indianapolis, where when you're driving through the neighborhood, you'd lock your doors and roll up the windows single mother, fraternal uh, twin brother. Some people say he's as dark as Wesley Snipes. I don't think he's that dark, but uh, is. And at the age of five years old, almost lost my life due to a stray bullet. And that was just another day and living in the hood. And you never knew if you was going to make it to the, the next day. And then luckily ended up making out of that environment uh, when mother moved us out from the inner city to more of the suburban uh, location. We were still in lower income housing. My brother went back to that environment and actually took a different trajectory in life and got started in real estate on the construction side as a laborer. And then I read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Everyone's familiar with that book. Well, most I would say. And I saw that the rich and wealthy people did not get that way by being laborers. And I started investing, uh, figuring out a way to become an investor. But I had no cash and uh, credit score wouldn't even register when you would pull it. Ended up finding someone to partner with who brought the cash on that very first deal, which was a single family house, bought 150 single families, and then started transitioning to multifamily, which got up to about 500 units and over the years have been selling. How did you make that transition from the smaller deals, the single family deals to multifamily? And why did you decide to make that transition? Is I've got a hat on for everyone who's on here. And but is part of the reason due to that is having that many single families, 150, is I lost a lot of hair due to that because there is a, I was self-managing. And when I say I, there was a, a team involved as well, is that there's a lot of moving parts. This wasn't just one package of 150 single families that would have been nice, but this was a lot of one-offs. And if lucky, we'll get a package of two to three here and there. So it was a lot of volume, uh, Robert, with looking at a lot of deals in order to get one. And then also from the management standpoint is had 10, 11 employees or so roughly around that in order to manage all that because had several in Indianapolis and then several in Dayton. And then took a step back and said, which model is more scalable? And it just made the most sense to make that transition to multifamily. And this was in 2017. Since you lived in Indy, you spent a lot of time focusing on that market. I'd say you know it really, really well. How has that market evolved over time for real estate investing? And where are you focusing your efforts now outside of just India? I know you mentioned Houston, but are you looking in any other markets as well? Yeah. So I actually bought a deal. This was an 80 unit in Louisville. This was 2019. Yeah, 2019. And so primarily in the Midwest markets, 
Louisville, Louisville or Louisville, however you want to pronounce that. Uh, and then also Lexington, Kansas City, and then several uh, markets such as Cincinnati and Columbus in Ohio. And how Indianapolis has shifted over the years is it's becoming even more competitive. And the price per unit, that's one gauger I would always use when buying deals is could be all into a property anywhere between about 50 to 55,000 per unit. And this is in Indianapolis, you guys. People in California are thinking, I couldn't even, what? There's no way. Be all into the unit, about 50 to 55,000, and then be able to rent that and push the rents up to about $800 on average. However, that has gone up to 70, 75 uh, per unit, just in essence, getting uh, priced out. How did you find the other markets to invest in? I know some of those are not that far from Indy. Was that a, a part of it? Was it data? Was it demographics? What were you looking for in those markets? Very comparable to Indianapolis and the economics, meaning that the population growth, uh, the job growth as well, and then also the corporations that are uh, within the city, but nothing too crazy when it comes to the growth. Slow and steady, uh, which is what uh, how Indianapolis has uh, been. And then also, preferably markets that are within about a two, two and a half hour drive, because I have taken the strategy and actually, when I say I again, there's a team involved, is that have taken the approach and going direct to the owner. The way on how I follow up, I can say I in this particular case, but uh, is how I would uh, follow up with an owner is that it would be easier for, let's say it's Monday, Robert, I would follow up with the owner and say, hey, I'm actually going to be in town this upcoming Thursday. Would enjoy putting my hand in your hand and or either catching up and just another way to follow up. And it would be easier to take that trip. And that would give me the upper hand over the a lot of competitors who couldn't move with that type of speed. So that's another element that helped uh, too, is that those economics and then also how close it was to the Indianapolis market, about two and a half hours. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. 
Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. You just mentioned briefly how you're finding deals, how you're getting in contact with owners, but break down for us your acquisition strategy. How are you finding deals? What strategies are you using? Are you doing any on-market stuff? Is it all relationship-based? Are you doing direct listing to uh, direct owner? Are you doing mailings? What, What strategies are you utilizing? We're going to have to unpack that quite a bit, Robert, but uh, is how is pulling lists? So how it first started was taking the driving for dollars approach. That very first apartment, which was a 46 unit, is just uh, driving around, finding properties that need work. This one in particular is you would, the parking lot looked like an alligator's back. So it was just very bland uh, and just needed work. So with that one is the, that was the approach that was taken from a lead generation standpoint. But the primary point of outreach is via call, so cold calling. And then shortly after finding that initial deal is had to find another scalable approach. So then started pulling lists from, let's say, a database such as Reonomy or even CoStar and pull these lists and then do the outreach through that way and have VAs that are making the calls. And then as soon as an owner raises their hand, yes, I would be interested in selling, not just give me an offer I can't refuse or everything's for sale for the right price. There has to be actual motivations. Uh, and then that's when the appointment's set for me. I remember last time we talked, even though it's been a while, you walked us through kind of your script and your conversation that you have with these sellers when you're doing cold calling. Take us through that example. And, and I know you you mentioned that your team is kind of making those calls for you. You're not necessarily doing it so much yourself anymore, but still what, talk us through that a little bit. What is their script? What are they saying? How are they having those conversations? It's very simple and transparent and straight uh, to the point. There's no NLP. This person says this. I'm going to do a backflip there based upon what they said to what does it match what they, what they said. There's none of that. It's just simply, hey, my boss. Uh, well, it opens. Hey, Robert Sterling here. Did I catch you at a bad time? So we always open up with that. No. Hey, how was your day? That just screams sales call. Uh, so we start out with that. Many of the times they'll say, well, what is this call regarding? And it's say, hey, completely understand. I'm sure you get these calls all the time, Robert. My boss wanted me to personally reach out to you. We just bought Bentwood Apartments across the street from yours and wanted to personally reach out to see if you consider selling. So very straight to the point. And it's either yay or nay from that. And many of the times they'll say, hey, not interested. Hey, I knew you were going to say, give me 30 seconds. If you don't like what you hear, I'll hang up on myself. Sound fair? 
because many times you want to keep yourself in the call because they may just say not interested just to get you off the, the, the phone. It's the same as if you walk into a shoe store, which not many people do nowadays because now you could just order the shoes. But is let's say you do walk into a shoe store and the person comes up to you and you're and you just say, just look, it's just a reflex. That's one thing is on the same as the call is you want to overcome that initial objection and find out if it's actually real. And then that's when you go into the fact finding to actually determine if there is a desire to sell or some motivation. We've talked a bit about the markets you're going into, how you're finding those deals, some of your cold calling strategies. We haven't talked about what are you actually buying? Take us through your buying criteria. What does that look like? What are your criteria when you're going to look for something to acquire? Formerly, these were and actually have shifted the criteria since then, but more so around the 1970s built in construction. These are in B minus to to B uh, locations and also just right outside the the city. So not in the city, not in the suburbs, but just right outside of that. I believe some people actually call it the urban core. So just outside of the actual city. And these are uh, properties that need work. So that's formerly how it was. And just give you a prime example, this is a 156 unit that bought about a year and a half ago is that it was $6.2 million as the purchase price, an absolute steal from a, uh, was it a purchase price standpoint, and then put $2 million into that. So it was a heavy value add and actually now shifting more to the 1980s, less of the heavy lifting. Because what I'm finding or have found is that the risk versus reward of its best oftentimes actually buy the newer asset that has less of the heavy lifting because it has more risk. It's just not as enough of a spread. I think you were looking for the word deferred uh, maintenance, maybe? I would say the delta in saying that you can buy something that, let's say, distressed at a five and a half cap and then a B property or that's 1980s for about the same. So it's not worth the risk in going with something that has more risk and deferred maintenance is a prime example versus just now going with something that's 1980 that has less because the costs are actually becoming very uh, thin on the seat because people are willing to pay more. Are you raising capital for these deals? Correct. Yes. All in-house. And how are you doing that? Take us through the entire cycle from very beginning to the end of a potential investor in one of your deals. So take us from, they just heard about you. You got to take them from the very, very beginning all the way to the end of when they actually give you money to invest in one of your deals. How it starts from the beginning, beginning is content marketing. That is the way being on podcasts, uh, being on Bigger Pockets is another uh, example is contributing content. So that way people come to you and they're more warmer that way versus you reaching out to them. So there's that. They come into the funnel that way. And then once a deal is under contract, then that's when you uh, would email the investors and say, hey, we got this deal. It's under contract. We've got 30 days due diligence. We'll keep you in the loop of how things are progressing. And during that whole 30 days phase and even prior to that is we'll get soft commitments from investors. So take the approach there is raising the fund to where you already have the capital available. The process that I take is that once the deal is under contract, then start raising money. Have you ever run into a situation where you got a property under contract and you weren't able to raise the capital? Yes and no. So yes, 
on this was a, a deal that was the second, which was the 50 unit, but is didn't raise all of the money to actually have in the bank account. And that's one thing you want to have is that you want to have the money raised that you need to actually close on the property in your bank account. Can't show up to the title company and say, hey, we've got about a million dollars that's on the way. They don't care. You need that in your actual bank. On one deal is didn't have, it was about 200 to about $300,000 left was needed to actually close on the property. So didn't have that. In essence, had to get gap funding from a lender. So a short-term bridge until we actually to close on the property. And then we were still continuously raising to then cash that person out. Has it become more difficult in recent months, weeks to raise capital given the environment that we're in? I would say is over the the years is haven't uh, been acquiring. I wouldn't know necessarily on that. I do know my uh, business partner who is taking a transition in raising capital for deals. There hasn't been any issues uh, on that. When was the last time you acquired a property? This was a year and a half. So that 156 unit. Myself is over the years have been selling to get dry powder because I believe we're going to start to, which I've seen a shift in the market to be more of a, a buyer's market and want to ca- have the cash ready and available to start to scoop these deals up. How often are you using creative financing when acquiring deals and which creative financing strategies are you using? The creative on the creative financing side, the very first deal, which was the 46 unit, was the creative. And we could go into the definition of what is creative uh, financing. But I would say is for that one in particular is that the total purchase price was $900,000 of which had the, it was seller financing. I had to put down $200,000. The, the seller carried back 700000 and then raised an additional $485,000 from outside investors to then take care of those improvements. However, after that, have just taken the, the simple approaches. If the property is $10 million is the purchase price, 7 million of that will come from a lender and then raise the remaining 30% from investors. That's the structure that have been utilizing going forward. It sounds like you have some potentially strong opinions maybe on the current environment, given that you're selling off some properties, not doing any acquisitions currently. What do you make of the current environment and what do you think it means for real estate investors? It's very uncertain times, I would say. And I'll tell you, Robert, the third deal that I acquired, it was an 80 unit apartment, Buckridge at Southport, bought it for $3.35 million. A year and a half, two years later, sold it for $5 million. I have no way, have no clue how that person made that deal work. I'm looking at it. We're operating it at this. How can someone make that work? So it's just at this point, not making sense where people are uh, buying deals for. And I believe those same deals will start to come up because what they penciled out in their aggressive model likely is just not going to end up pending out. And then they're going to have to sell because they're not going to be able to operate the property at that level. So that's what I see those deals starting to come up. And then also the, the rising of the interest rates. But also the thing is with commercial is that even with the inflation going up as another is that as inflation goes up, rents go up. So I don't see a huge shift uh, when it comes to, to multifamily. Residential, for sure, that's already being affected. But I am starting to see sellers' expectations starting to come down to be more with where the market actually should be. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. 
Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Are you keeping a list of any of those properties that you've sold that you felt were maybe a little bit on the steep side and you're not really sure how those people are are making the deals work so that you can follow up with them in maybe six to nine months, 12 months to see if they're ready to sell, just given that they're you, you know that their business plan might not have worked out? Yeah, because I made the mistake and I don't know exactly how their numbers uh, end up panning out or anything, but one of the deals that I acquired, which was a, a 50 unit is, ended up overpaying for the property didn't raise enough money to take care of the uh, renovations up front because if we'd have raised the money up front, then it would have affected the returns to the investors and the, the returns were already, it was already tight deal. And this was a mistake I heard so many other people make and was like, you know what? I'll be able to figure this out. And no, it didn't end up panning out uh, that way. So I believe there's people now that are actually more so making that mistake as well. And I think I wouldn't speak on that particular deal because I don't know their underwriting, 
But several years on that mistake that I made was just a year and a half later had to end up selling that. So that's what I believe what you're saying is we'll definitely follow up with those. How did that deal end up for you? It was okay on the return uh, to the investors did not hit the expected projections, but it was a death spiral, as I would say, is that the thought would be able to take the improvements that we would put to the upgrades to the units to then push those to the, the market rate rents out of the cash flow. You guys, everyone on here, please, 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 please jot this down. I know someone's going to make the mistake anyway, but uh, that does not translate to reality because it turns out that we just didn't have enough cash flow to be able to sustain that. So we were barely just breaking even on it and could barely pay, what is it, distributions to our investor partner who actually had to sell it. But here's the thing, Robert, we sold it at the height of the market. Just think is if we sold it in a downturn or actually couldn't be able to sell it and we would have had to ride it out, that would not have been a good experience. So that's why I want to share that with people is, yes, it's good to learn from your own mistakes, but I'll tell you is it is even better to learn from others. What would you say the biggest mistake was with that deal? Did you pay too much money or was it overestimating cash flow? It was a combination, but I would say initially is was in the scarcity mindset and that, hey, we got to figure out a way to make this deal work. So that was first and foremost. And second, one, overpaying for the property, but then second, by overpaying uh, for the property that caused us to say to creatively figure out ways to get into a bad deal. And that was not raising enough money to take care of the, the CapEx. So that was the, the second mistake that was made. And then that, of course, led to other things do. But primarily is overpaid for the property and was in the scarcity mindset. Does the scarcity mindset mean that you felt that you were going to have a hard time finding another deal? So you felt like you had to make this deal work? Exactly. And that is I know we're talking about real estate, but I also works into other aspects of life is let's say you're in the dating for whatever is you're in the dating and you're like, oh man, I want this woman here and I don't have any other ones that are close to this one or just in the pipeline for lack of better words. And then you're, you overlook all the red flags in order to make that work. So it's the same thing in this case. How have you applied what you learned from that deal to future deals? How that works is just having more of the abundance mindset is numbers don't lie. And the numbers tell you an actual story is that is and you have to look at it objectively and logically and not get your emotions involved with it. That's the biggest thing I've learned is that if the numbers tell you one story is just to, to stick to those numbers and don't look to creatively figure out a way to get into a bad deal. And I'll and I had a call with this other investor that he was looking to buy a deal and he was, he was asking me for all these creative ways to uh, finance the deal. And I said, I know what you're asking me is I remember asking others the same question on a bad deal, meaning that I was creatively trying to figure out a way to get into a bad deal and overpay for it. There's no creative that I found creative way to get or why you should back into a bad deal. If it's too much, it's too much. How did your investors handle that? How did they kind of just accept what that deal became? Luckily, I had a track record before that and having good uh, to great uh, returns on that. And this was just one of those deals that through the whole entire process was very transparent with each and every one of the investors. It was 
unfortunate. It wasn't that they lost money or anything. It was they, they got their initial uh, investment back. We just didn't hit our original uh, projections. Uh, so as we were transparent uh, through the process and then also set that expectation that, hey, we're not going to get what we thought we were going to get. This is what we're actually uh, shooting for on this. They were okay with that. And they actually, some invested, some didn't invest in our upcoming deals. Others did because we were transparent throughout the whole process. And those things is on here. I'm okay with sharing my mistakes because mistakes are going to happen. And I want to be uh, transparent with everyone on here. That way you can learn from my mistakes. I'm sure it's going to vary from deal to deal, but what do you classify as a good deal? What are your benchmarks or hurdle rates for whatever metrics you look at? Are you looking at cash on cash, IRR, payback period? What are you looking at and what are those benchmarks? Primarily the cash on cash and IRR. So for the cash on cash to be double digits, so 9 to 11%, uh, and then for the IRR to be closer to 20%. And are those hard rules for you in that you won't, if, it, if it's 8%, you're not even interested or is it have some wiggle room there? There's some wiggle room, but it comes down to the risk versus a reward. If it's, which wouldn't even look at a property that's in a really bad location, but is want to be close to those metrics that I mentioned to you. So there is definitely some wiggle room. When are you, what are you looking at now that's going to tell you now is the time to start buying? Like what, when do you know it's going to be right to start buying again? I would say the sediment on the sentiment, I think is how you pronounce it, among the investors that I currently uh, speak with, because there's investors that are even further along in their journeys than I am, is that when the overall sediment is not a seller's market. So once I start to see more of a shift, it is shifting a little bit. But even the brokers I'm still communicating with is that buyers are still able to come up to above market prices. So once the brokers actually start calling me and following up with me, hey, you want to look at this deal? Hey, it's been sitting a little bit longer and there's no highest and best. Hey, oh, I mean, excuse me, there's a final call that offers. And then after the final calls offers, there's another highest and best and another round from that. Once I see a slowdown on that side, or maybe even a black swan event uh, comes, Robert, then that's when I believe it starts to be the time to pull the trigger. Are you not concerned that you're potentially trying to time the market? And, you know, Warren Buffett is very famously said the best time to invest is when there's blood in the streets and, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. And I think people have been greedy over the last few years and people are a bit fearful now. So maybe it's our turn to be greedy. So I'm curious how you kind of balance that dynamic. From what I indicated is some form of uh, timing the market, but preferably, which uh, you can use in, which is used more so in, let's say, in investing in stocks or other asset classes is using the dollar cost average. That would be similar in this case is it doesn't have to absolutely be rock bottom because trying to time the rock bottom is virtually uh, impossible. As things start to turn down and when underwriting deals actually able to, to pencil out close to those cash on cash returns that I mentioned to you or ROR, IRR, doesn't have to be absolutely closer to 20%, but it just has to come down to the risk versus reward uh, side. It could be 17%, but uh, is look at that. And then once things start to shift to be within reason, then that's when uh, we'll start to pull the trigger. Sterling, as we wrap up the show here, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience where they can go to connect with you. What are the best resources, websites, social media? Where can everybody find you that wants to learn a bit more about you? 
Yeah, so you can find me on sterlingwhiteofficial.com. That is sterlingwhiteofficial.com. And then also I'm pretty active when on the, the YouTube side. So you just type in Sterling White, look for a bald, uh, handsome uh, guy with a smile, and I'll come right on up. <laughs> I will be sure to put a link to your resources, everything you just mentioned in the show notes below. I'll also link to our previous episode that we did together for anybody that's interested in going back and, and checking that out as well. Sterling. It's been two and a half years, but thank you so much for joining me again. It was great to catch up. Likewise. And Robert, any pivotal or changes that uh, you experienced on your side in the past two and a half years? No, I wouldn't say nothing pivotal, really. Just kind of small, just taking small chunks. Yeah, I got a beard. So I, I guess it's maybe the most pivotal thing is I was able to grow a beard, which is interesting because no other male in my family can grow a beard. My dad, my brother, everybody else is... uh very bald face. So I was not surprised. I was very surprised and not expecting to be able to grow a beard. So yeah, I guess I would say that's pivotal. But on the more business and front really is just kind of chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And in real time, nothing seems overly pivotal really. But when I look back, I think 5, 10 years, I think every little notch is going to look back and I'll see that I, I moved a lot. Yeah, exactly. I definitely appreciate you having me again on the, the, the podcast, Robert. I really enjoy what is it chopping it up with you. Well, thank you, Sterling. We'll, we'll catch up again soon, hopefully sooner than two and a half years. Yes, let's do it. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.